Welcome to season two of the Aging Project podcast. I'm your host, Shelley Craft, and together we're here to uncover and explore the secrets to healthy, fabulous, vibrant aging. We've done the research and we've found the best guests ready to help you flourish at any age. So join me as I ask the big questions, your questions, to some of the world's leading authorities in health, wellness and lifestyle. Think of them as your own support aging mentors, a group of experts that are here to make the little changes turn into a big difference for us. The Aging Project was created to help you age well, to help us all age well together. So welcome to the Aging Project podcast. A question, who are the five wisest people you know? I'm starting to wonder if being wise is a character trait that we really don't hear enough about. Perhaps it's assumed with age comes wisdom and at a certain point we know everything. I think most of us would agree that that is definitely not the case. Older does not equal wiser. And on the topic of wise women, I loved watching Oprah in my 20s and what a wise woman she was. But besides Oprah, I can count on a few fingers the people I'd describe as truly wise, the people that I can turn to for advice. Which brings me to our guest today, the very wise Karen Lang. Karen is an energy healer, a counsellor and the author of two beautiful books, Courage and Moving Moments. Let me say, Karen, thank you so much for writing your story, this one particularly, Moving Moments. Um, You have really condensed 20 years of wisdom into 200 pages and I loved it. This, This is the book that you will keep beside your bed and turn to over and over and over again. So everybody grab yourselves a copy of this, Moving Moments. Karen, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, thank you so much for having me. It's an honour to speak with you and I'm very excited to share about this today. Thank you. The thing with wisdom is we don't just wake up wise, do we? Would you say that it's a, a never-ending journey? Do we ever reach true wisdom? Uh, absolutely not. <laughs> but I think when we clarify what wisdom is and it, what it is for me is someone that's taken the time and the patience to really understand who they are beyond all the stories and the belief systems and the thoughts that we had growing up, when we peel that back, to me, wisdom is someone who knows the core of their natural sense of self and their beautiful sense of awareness that is life itself. We would love to be able to find this in ourselves without having to go through um, a tragic circumstance or I guess that light bulb moment. Um, You obviously had one of those in your life. Your journey was defined by a definite starting point that you do outline in the first chapter of your book. Uh, The chapter is called The Moment My Life Changed. Perhaps you could Mm. put that into context for, for everybody listening. Yes, absolutely. So in 2001, our son, who was nine years old at the time, Nathan, was hit by a car just on a quiet street in in our suburbia that we live in. And um, at that moment, our entire life changed. Um, He sustained massive head injuries at the time. And then a couple of days later, he was pronounced um, brain dead. And then we had the decision to turn off the life support. So an absolutely pivotal point in my life where we've gone from believing we know everything, um, that we have a future planned out, that we have control over what's going on in our life, to 
to a complete shutdown that nothing makes sense anymore. And so that's truly, as you said before, isn't what anyone needs to have to understand who they truly are. But for me, it was my wake up call to start looking at life through a different lens and to start preparing the journey um, that was I was about to face. So yeah, huge, huge time. No one would ever, um, sorry, it's, it's a beautiful and emotional story and I'm still um, working it out for myself how you do ever pick yourself out of that. No one would ever blame you for sitting in that grief forever but you have a choice at that point don't you or or, you know beyond that point what am I going to do how do I get myself um, beyond feeling the way I feel how how do you even start that journey Karen well I don't think in the beginning there is a choice I think the choice comes later on when you have some time to realize you do have a choice how you react and respond to such a tragedy but in the beginning, you just go into complete shutdown. And um, every moment in that first few days really came uh, full on to me that nothing else matters when you come and face death, whether it's your own or whether it's someone that you love. That is the moment where you truly understand life. And I know that a lot of people have written about this and say, you know, the five most important things when you're just about to die isn't whether you look good or isn't, you know, how you're feeling at the time. And so I guess the most um, powerful experience that I had in that moment was that nothing else matters except for our moments with him and our appreciation of how precious life was. And I was stunned to see how that could completely change in, in a moment, whereas Previous to that, I wouldn't have really thought about it. So I guess death, if anything, wakes us up to see this moment in all its preciousness. This book moves on very quickly um, from the situation to how you did start to work through that process. And there's so many beautiful chapters in the book today that are going to offer um, so much for our listeners and our community to get so much out of it. I'm sorry I keep crying. It's just, oh, you're just such a beautiful lady. I can't can't believe it. Maybe I am. This is what I need right now. Um, So let's see if we can narrow it down to, you know, two or three topics that, that our audience can really dig into uh, the chapter yeah. that's called a simple life um, tell me about that chapter and where did the idea of traveling come from and, and and what did that teach you actually I was thinking about this before and I actually think that we watched a documentary on a family who had a year in the Provence and I know there's a book about that but I'm not sure if it's the same family and I remember Michael and I watching that documentary going how cool would that be to go and live in another country with our kids and all the hardships that we watched every week with this family still didn't deter us. And, and I think that planted a seed in us um, prior to us making a decision. And I think unconsciously though, incredibly so, we ended up, we were looking at the Provence, we ended up finding this tiny little town or this tiny little town in um, Tuscany found us. I really do believe that because when you head out into one direction, somehow you get pulled into another. Uh, And this little town between um, Siena and Florence pulled us in there in hindsight to slow down. And I guess the Italians are the epitome of slowing 
down or living a slow life. But the difference between here and there that what I discovered is that here we really don't get to choose or we do get to choose whether we want to be busy or not. But over there you don't because they're just slow. And so they closed their shops from 1.30 to 3 mm -hmm. and you just didn't get to do what you would do here. So it forced us to come and for the first time in our life really sit and hold our grief and, and feel it um, because we didn't have to do that here. We weren't forced to. We tended to keep going along. And so Italy to me was the beginning of how I learned to recognise what was going on in me in my grief. And we did that as a family, which was incredibly powerful and, and a gift. So giving yourself that, that distance from um, everything and everyone you knew as well, that you could sort of be yes. incognito, if you like, and just be as sad and traumatised as you like without being judged on it, do you think, by, by your I friends and so. family? I think so. Think, I think you made a really good point. I think those all those um, parts of us started to be revealed there because we had some freedom and we had some space. And so there is a sort of a... a a pressure perhaps like how are you going in your grief and are you have you finished it and I like can now we get back to normal and you and you party and you do all the things that you used to do and I just couldn't find that person anymore and I had to realize what the illusion was so yes I think that that going over there and feeling that anonymous you know the anonymous of it and the pressure was taken off that we were able to give ourselves some real time um, in the slowness where they cook slow and they eat slow and we do everything opposite here and it was the best place for us to start to heal, absolutely. So now, did, was that sort of your learnings, as you say, about how you now live more in the present? Um, is that where that began for you as well or was it really just a time of, of healing? No, it's for, like for me, Italy sort of foundationed a thought process about being present and then when I came home I started to delve into much more bigger practices of my meditation and my yoga and I really started to go into a pathway that I'd never thought that I would have embarked on before and so I studied Reiki and energy healing and I really wanted to understand more and more about the passion that was awakening in me that I never knew existed and it was a really authentic feeling that this is what I wanted to do um, to perhaps also heal my grief but also bring into the world a, a message that it's possible to heal and become out the other end in a place where you feel as one with life. Did you practice any sort of meditation or, or um, holistic practices before Nathan's passing or was it something that really came about in in this process? Oh, absolutely in this process. I had, you know, been brought up as a Catholic and done the usual participation of that practice in religion, but in the actual spiritual practice of understanding who I was and moving through it, none at all, none at all. No meditation, no stillness, no quietness. Um, yeah, it was really difficult to go, on, go from that really busy mind to create a space for a calm, present mind. I love in the in at the end of every chapter you ask a question, which I think is is just fantastic and a way to stay engaged throughout the story and and with you. Um, in that simple life chapter, you ask, "How often are my thoughts in the future and not here in the present?" 
and what can I do to change this? Um, what can we do to change that? What is a simple daily practice you recommend for that, for being more in the present? I think people forget that slowing down is just something you naturally do. And I don't think it is because none of us were trained or practiced growing up in that way. So for me, we have to create the space to even slow down and tune in and to listen and to be aware of what's going on in us. And that takes some patience because as soon as you sit still, as we all know, that monkey mind comes in and starts yelling at us to do something immediately and that everything suddenly that wasn't urgent now becomes urgent. And so people say, as soon as I sit down, you know, the phone rings or the kids come in or, you know, that usual distraction and avoidance of stillness. So my message is always the same. You have to create the space and you have to be disciplined in giving your body and your mind that room to, to listen. Does it matter to you what that is? Uh, we have discussed meditation here at the Aging Project before, which is a practice that I now um, have and do, and I've found it's done wonders for me. Um, more for the fact, I'm sure as, as I go on and I get better at it, I'll find you know deeper, more meaningful reasons why I'm doing it. But for me, it is at the moment an excuse or a reason for me to sit still. And sometimes I find I don't find that place in, in meditation as such, but I have taken 20 minutes a day or, or two times a day for myself, which I would never yeah. do. Otherwise, I would find something else to do. But yeah. because I'm practicing something or I've been told this is good for me, it's almost like giving myself permission to stop, whether that be for some people just having a cup of tea or whether it is taking time to garden is that the same thing giving yourself 20 minutes of your time for you the same as actually going into a, into a proper meditation or, or practice I think there's some powerful changes when you go into with a, a, a clear intention so a lot mm -hmm. of people say to me I've you know I've gone and had a facial and I've and I've gone and gone some shopping and they're not, for me, clear intentions of sitting still and going through the uncomfortable paces of actually listening and questioning what's going on in my body. What, how am I feeling today? What's um, happened throughout this, you know, the last few months that, that my pathway isn't flowing easily. So I think that spending time doing the things that you love and then spending time intentionally listening and creating space for what you need is different. So that would be the only clarity that, that I would make. And I think that in the beginning, a guided meditation is really helpful for that busy mind because it's almost impossible to start to slow it down. But eventually the stillness should just become the stillness, that you close your eyes, that you focus on your breath and that you become aware that you're here and that there's nowhere else to be but here. And when you get that and start practising and strengthening that part of your life, you really will start to understand the flow and the harmony that's already present within you. And I think why we don't feel it is because we don't give ourselves time to connect to it within. Mm -hmm. So to we, should be doing, we should be doing all those things. You need your meditation <laughs> practice and your facial and the gardening and a cup of tea throughout the day. There is, there is no time left for anything else. It's just that. <laughs> all day women should just be doing that. <laughs> <gasps> Which brings world. us 
which brings us to your, your next chapter here, which is on judgment. And this is probably where this really does come into play that we know we're often, well, we're definitely harder on ourselves than we are on anyone else. And I don't think that is just women. I think everyone is terribly judgmental of themselves. Um, yes. To find that love for yourself, um, we can easily find the faults. We don't often know how it is to find the love for ourselves. Yeah. Um, I, I, again, as I get older and, and I hope that our listeners are finding that they do love themselves more and more as they get older, um, not hating themselves that they were when they were younger, but obviously finding that deep care yourself that we're, we're not judging ourselves so much um yeah. you do right I've always you always have been hard on yourself and looking back how you can see how self-judgment not only affected you but but rippled out to everybody around you yeah can you tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about that that self-judgment that you had yes well I think it's it's taught to us and you know maybe expressed to us from young children again none of us grew up feeling that deep um, understanding of our inner self and so we've all been trained to look at the outer body and the outer mind and the outer thoughts and it's all those things that start creating this feeling that it's only how you look that makes a difference and I think we're all a part of that but for me um, I think it was just in my teenage years and I was overweight and I felt like that everyone was watching me all the time and I just started to get really um, obsessed and focused only on my outside appearance. And no one was there mentoring me for that inside world. No one was saying, this is the more important aspect of yourself that you should be looking at and focusing on and getting to know, as opposed to you keep forever changing your outside appearance to um, find that acceptance and love. And I think what I discovered um, as an adult and into this practice more and more is that we're actually judging the illusion of who we are. So we're never actually going to find the remedy for it when we're judging an illusion. So we're judging the way that our face looks or that our body looks, which isn't us in that sense. I know physically it's us, but that's the focus that keeps us on that cycle that we're never going to get there because we're going to age and we're eventually going to look different. So we can never get off that, you know, uh, escalator of thoughts and beliefs. And all the women around us are encouraging it. We follow this story and this belief. We like it. And then we encourage each other to sustain it. So I will say to you, Shelley, you look amazing today. What did you do? Like, where did you go? How did you get to him looking so beautiful that I am now helping you stay in that story whereas mm. women in general don't feel comfortable allowing us to become the crones of life we all want to stay the maiden or the mother and not the crone because what does the crone envision this old wrinkly lady that's never going to have you know anything good to look at so I think what I started to understand is that I was judging an illusion and when I saw the illusion of that's not me, it might be my physical appearance that'll change over time, but the real me is never going to change, the natural self and awareness. And so if I could encourage anyone, it would be to stop judging something that you can never get right. Mm -hmm. Because anyone that's gone down that pathway to make themselves look beautiful, 
never ever reaches the bar. I mean, it just keeps moving. We were doing this. I mean, we grew up in an age when we were teenagers without Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, any of those things. Obviously, we had, you know, the good old Cosmo Cleos and Dollies around. But That's this it. obviously existed for our our mothers and our mothers' mothers. Is this an ancestral learning? And, and where do you think it even began? Is it is it that primal of, um, I guess, attracting the perfect mate? Are we going back that far that we've had these <laughs> these issues, these body issues? Oh. Well, I, I mean, it, it's to break out of the illusion of the outward appearance has been going on for generations and generations. Yes, absolutely. It's embedded in our genealogy and, and everything that we have thought about life. No one is is teaching their children when they grow up to to focus on that inside. So we are taught from a young age, you're so beautiful, you're so perfect, and then you hopefully you're going to maintain that somewhere along the line. And we then all get around and all of us have got the same belief system. So someone has to start breaking it and letting women age and letting women be seen as beautiful in their old age. And I don't think we're there yet. And I think that no one can tell you you're beautiful until you've recognised it within yourself. Really, that's at the end of the day, the only way you're going to discover who you are is to find it first in you. And then I'll start to recognise in you. Because while I'm judging the illusion in me, I'm going to compare the illusion with you. So I'm going to look at you and go, oh, but I'm not there yet or I should be like that. And that's the way women talk to each other. And I, you're right. Who says they're beautiful? Who comes up and says, just want to let you know everyone today, I am beautiful. And everyone in the room would go, mm-hmm, well, we're not there yet. <laughs> and Isn't it crazy that we'd love, we'd love our children to say that about themselves and we get upset yeah. when our kids say oh no I don't like this today or my skin doesn't look any good I mean we're, yes. we're the first to say how beautiful our they children are, are and, how, and our you know our siblings and our friends and our own mothers and things we're the first to say oh my goodness you are magnificent um, is it just that you know we talk about that fake it till you make it is it enough to just keep telling yourself that or is no. there some way we can actually change our minds um, yes. to know how, how beautiful we really are the only way you can change your mind about this belief system and this judgment that we have on our bodies and our face and our hair is to discover the inner self and the natural state of being and even saying that to people is foreign I know it is because I've had to learn to discover that even though I go to that place and discover my true sense of being my my outer self and my old belief systems will come up again and again and again in my mind as a thought process so we've got to learn when we discover that that inner sanctuary is calm peace love that when those thoughts come in about how we look we've actually got to stop paying attention to them and stop following them so it's not fake it to you to make it. It's actually a discipline that when you feel that you've got to go and buy that outfit or where you feel like you're being pulled to go and do that latest Botox, whatever, you have to say no. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not saying to people that they can't look beautiful. My thoughts are, I think we have to look at the attention and the focus that we have on it and discover why we keep staying there. 
And I truly believe that once you start discovering who you really are, you will start to pull back that storyline and dissolve it over time. It, it's mm -hmm. a practice and no one's immune from those thoughts. But it's not just standing in the mirror and saying, I'm beautiful when you don't feel it in here. And that doesn't mean too, does it, once you actually find that within yourself that then you can, you don't have to stop wearing makeup, you don't have to stop oh, enjoying, no. yeah. you know, having your hair or, a, or doing a facial or wearing something lovely. But that's just, a, you know, if someone says you look great, it's like, thanks so much, but there's a lot more going on inside me than, than just how I look on the outside. That's, that's right. the thing. I think people feel like if I'm going to, um, if I'm yeah, truly going to love myself, then I can't love the other. But, but that's not true, is it? No, no, it's all part of the package, but it's about you recognising that that's not who you are because those thoughts and those focuses are so strong in women that it's really taking them away from finding that other part of yourself. So we all know that. How much focus, time and energy are we placing on our outward experience? Just ask that question and then come back and work out why and then see how uncomfortable it feels if you don't go and pursue that thought because it's uncomfortable and they're the sort of things we really need to challenge ourselves on if we want to break the cycle of judgment not only within ourselves but with each other. You're working in this space every day now Karen with um, the clients that come to you where do yeah. you start with a client that arrives on your doorstep that has obviously decided that they're ready um, to begin to change and begin to find that self-love where do you begin with someone well initially um as an energy healer i can feel in their body body energy where it's blocked and again that can come from an ancestral belief system in our dna and which we might talk about later but the actual energy of a person is the first thing that i tune into and work out where we're holding these patterns and then we start unpacking what's going on in their life at the moment that isn't flowing, that isn't working. And that always gives me the insight into what's going on physically and emotionally and spiritually with them. So it's really when someone comes in hungry to learn about who they are, it's my favourite place ever because I understand where they are at and where they can come to. But more importantly, that what they're seeing in themselves is so isn't normally the illusion and they haven't recognized and discovered that beautiful light being and wholeness that they already are so uh, my encouragement and my mentoring on that is my favorite part but that's the initial stages are to really just work out why are they here what's not working for them in their life and how we can start dissolving that and then starting to reveal that gold and that wholeness that's already waiting for them to see and how long can that process take? I'm assuming it's different for everybody, but I, I'm also assuming it doesn't happen <laughs> in one session. Well, maybe 100 years. <laughs> <laughs> um, really, it, 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 as much time as you're going to put in and focus and effort will, will determine how long that initial phase takes. So as we all know, we often get excited about um, coming into a new way of thinking and, and a lot of people get excited and do different courses and um, different therapies and different ways of looking at life but the practice is the practice and that's the chop wood carry water part that a lot of people don't like to do and so when we do sit in stillness and work out 
what are the stories and the illusions that are living out in my life and what is real and what is authentic that's the practice and the more you do that the more clearer the picture becomes about who you are you touched briefly just a moment ago on ancestral healing, so happy to move on to that topic because I find this absolutely fascinating. Um, maybe it is the Byron Bay in me, but um, it's certainly <laughs> yeah. an area that I think is, is extraordinary um, and is almost, again, giving you a reason um, to want to to better yourself, if you can sort of blame it on something that isn't just coming from from you um, by yeah. yourself, it's something that is much deeper than that. I think that's a lovely, almost a, a release to say, oh, well, it isn't just me. This has come from, you know, generations, as you say. What What yeah. is that ancestral healing? Yes. So everyone knows Ancestry.com. So we can start there. And um, when you know your family name and you know what origins perhaps you're behind, you can start typing in your family surname and you can start forming a family tree. And then we got the gift of the ancestral um, uh, testing, so that the DNA testing, so that we can now find out what origins and what parts of the country. That's my favourite part, to understand that what you thought you were has now been discovered you're completely a different ethnic group altogether. Um, so the, the part that I'm working on that, that I learned about ancestral healing is working with those behavioural epigenetics that allow us to see the patterns that have gone from generation to generation to generation. And yes, it started somewhere, but I, what I don't want to focus on so much is that all the bad things that our ancestors gave to us, but also the beautiful, healthy things that they gave us. So your gift is beautiful and unique and so is mine. And these were passed on from generations. So if I had to to separate that um, ancestral healing, there'd be pre-colonisation and before that. And so that normally before that were our beautiful, healthy ancestors that went to the grave in a healthy state in their mind and their body and spirit. And then, of course, colonisation and war created wounding. And so these wounds of scarcity, of, of um, you know, tragic deaths and, and all sorts of things that came with war are still locked into our DNA like a scar. And this is what I start to help people recognise these patterns that we see in ourselves. So we could say, well, I love... Um, cooking Italian because my nonna was Italian and all like that. Or I could say she was also a narcissist and she was also an alcoholic or she was also someone that never opened herself up to find, you know. And so these are some of the unfortunate traits and, and, and um, behaviours that we can get stuck in. And no matter what we do, we don't seem to be able to shift out of it. And so ancestral healing is very new, but it's also really a gift to all of us to say that we really do have a way to move through any issue that's going on through our life, um, as well as depression and mental health issues that clearly in the science now shows how that gets passed on PTSD. So it's very powerful to understand what's going on in us and then the different ways that, there's no one way, but there's different ways to address those wounds and then create healing for them. So do you need to have one of those um, DNA tests before you can start your ancestral healing or is it something that you as a practitioner can, can read in someone? Absolutely, yeah, you know, you don't have to have the test. The test is just, I think it's just really um, 
powerful to know your actual DNA history, which can lead you to understand a little bit more about yourself. But no, for me as an energy healer, I can feel that in your body. I can feel where it's stuck. And then we can work on the behavioral patterns, which again, any initial healing always makes you feel lighter and well. But the practice is to recognize and see those thoughts that are coming in and then literally stop paying attention to them and changing them by the way um, you see the world. And it just, it gets easier, but that's the general, well, it is, it, it's, fair, it's very deep, but it's the general gist of what ancestral healing can bring to our lives. My goodness. Without, without breaching any client uh, trust here, can you tell us yes. a story of someone that you've worked with? Uh, absolutely. I, I, just, I want to say in our own family line too, because I've been doing this more than some of my clients, obviously I've been doing it for a few years now, is that there's lots of separation in families. So you often hear someone saying, I don't speak to my father anymore. My mother and father broke up and there's a lots of disjointing at family gatherings and things like that. So one thing I really see, not only in my own ancestral line and family now, is that oneness coming back into a really healthy place that that compassion in ourselves starts to soften. Because remember when you've got these wounds that are pulling you into a story that you feel very familiar in, because that's what happens. The reason why we stay in behaviour patterns that perhaps aren't good for us is simply because they feel familiar. Mm -hmm. And so we learn to come out of that familiar. And one of the stories is that where families have stopped speaking to one another, there's, there's more compassion and there's more dialogue and there's more softness around it physically I've seen clients have heart conditions and that's improved and in fact the whole um, family starts to improve even if one person is doing the healing mm -hmm. on themselves that can start to create the ripple effect for all um, family members which just makes me so excited to know that we are all connected mm -hmm. that we are all one and so if I'm working on myself and healing these wounds, I can't not affect you. And this is how the family dynamics start to change. And I hear people go, that's impossible. My family could never change and I'll never have a relationship. And, and I tell them there's possibilities endless that we haven't allowed ourselves to open up to. So the oneness and the compassion and the love is what I really see reunited in families that mm -hmm. haven't, I haven't seen before in other um, modules of, of therapies. You really owe it to your family and the next generation to clear this out don't you? and not carry it on and not pass it on and things if you are having issues with your own um, family or, or situation that if you, I guess, die holding on to that, you are leaving those scars for the next generation in your genetic pattern. Is that is that right? That is exactly what it is. And so we understand that when we change ourselves, that we change our children's children's future. I think it's even in the Bible that they say that. So the ripple effect is that this, um, this story and this belief system is locked as a scar in your DNA. And when you learn to open that up, see it, acknowledge it and heal it and forgive that in your lineage, how can it not change the next generation's um, genealogy, genealogy. It just can't. Mm. It's, um, what I love is that science is backing this now 
and they're doing enough studies on it to show that we have the ability to and the opportunity to to create a new future for our children's children and that's what motivates me to do it for that because I don't want them facing those same things that I did. There's a beautiful quote in your book, each time someone is born into my lineage, they inherit an imprint of the past and a responsibility to change the future. So I think that sums it up beautifully. Yes, we are totally responsible for ourselves and our children's future. And I think we're underestimating the difference that we make when we say yes to that. So yes, can you tell us a story of a client that you've had that you've seen this sort of dramatic change in and how that has um, filtered through into their daily life and their relationships that they have with their family? Yes, absolutely. And so again, this particular client was about the relationship that she had with her family members. So as much as they feel healthier physically, this um, particular girl wasn't able to connect with her sister on any level. She wasn't, be, she wasn't able to see past. They were always fighting. The mother was always um, coming between them and trying to work it out. And so when she started to see some of the judgments and belief systems that she had been holding about herself and started to recognise in that and that we asked those ancestors to heal this within her, she slowly but surely started to see the changes that she felt towards her sister. So remember, anything that's changing in the world is us Mm -hmm. and that the ripple effect and the mirror is that people are going to start responding to us differently. So in her particular case, there was a lot of jealousy between the mother and the sister because there's always one side that stick together and someone else that might feel left out. So she was always feeling left out. But as she started to heal and change those thoughts and beliefs, she started to recognise and feel compassion for why her sister was doing what she was doing. And so she started to open up and she started to relate to her differently. And then over time, as she practised more and more and more, there was this softening from her mother who started to recognise her for the first time, who started to see her in the eyes that she's always wanted. And this is what was exciting her was because she's saying, I never believed that this, these relationships between mum and my sister could start to heal or change. And it did. And the miracle of it was that the one that started to come together and now the other family members are interested in what she's doing and they're looking at why she's, you know, so beautifully calm and so different. But it, it starts with us and our ability to just be open to change. Yeah. Are you, are you ever too young to start doing this? I mean, obviously, to want to make the change yourself is where you do begin. But can you do this as a family? Is there such a thing as sort of family ancestral healing where you're all in it together? A super quick pause in our conversation. Have you heard the news? The Aging Project has a sister platform called You Must Try It. It's come about because like you, we want to age well, but that means knowing which products or brands to buy. And let's face it, with so many products on the market, it's becoming harder to choose. So with the guidance of our in-house wellness team, we are doing the research for you. You'll only find tried, tested and loved products on youmusttryit.com. So if that's of any interest, go and sign up. We'd love you to join us. Okay, let's get back to our chat. Well, I think you're all in. Mm. I think I've done some couple therapy to know that it's really 
it doesn't sort of work so much because everyone's at different stages. But I think that once you start that openness, your ability to change everyone is more powerful than you'd know. So um, how young should you be? I think I would at least want them into an age group where they're like 15 or 16, where they're starting to sort of recognise. Starting to show they've got hang-ups. <laughs> yeah, starting to think they're big people. But what I say yeah. to, um, <laughs> what I say to parents, because a lot of parents like their children to come for healing, is that I would prefer the mother or the father to come for healing because they really will be the instruments in in healing the family because once you start to change of course the energy in the house starts to change and how you start to relate to people so probably never too young but I don't get many teenagers coming for ancestral healing but the few that I do um, come for a short time and I always think it's a, a seed of planting and mm -hmm. perhaps when they're ready and they're more mature they're able to come back and do the practice I think even those questions that you have uh, posed at the end of that chapter are what behavioural patterns have been in my family for too long. And we can see that, can't we? You know, even if we consider our family to be like the Griswolds and to all get along beautifully and, and want to, you know, live together forever, happily ever after, um, there are going to be patterns, behaviour patterns in there that you can recognise. Um, and are you ready to heal that for yourself and for your children's children? And I think they're yes. beautiful questions that we can all start asking ourselves now. Perhaps we, we then open the gate uh, that when we come to see you, we're already in the process of that. Yes, beautiful. It's always the beginning of it is the question. And do you want to change something that is not comfortable in your life? Or do you want to be closer to family members and um, to, to your relationships with others? And I think most people would say yes. Whether they take that next step is up to them. Your practice is also quite extraordinary when it comes to personal health um, and how we can block messages that our body's trying to give us or how we can use blockers, whether it be alcohol, addiction, um, whatever it is, to block things that we don't want to feel but that we aren't healing. Um, what, does, what does health mean to you as this sort of transformational practitioner? Yes. Well, I think growing up, I always thought I was sick. <laughs> so I think I paid a lot of attention to my body, perhaps too much so. But I think in, in, the, in our busy um, real lives of, of mothers or, you know, professionals, being sick isn't something that anyone likes to focus on. And it, it takes away our focus on the things that we love doing. But I, I love the thought that we have more um, understanding that our body wisdom is something that really is very highly intelligent and that when we're not feeling what we're supposed to be feeling in life, in the busyness of our minds and our life, then our body's wisdom has to sort of create some noise. That's how I always see sickness is that when we're not addressing things that we're, we should be feeling, whether it's our anger or our fear, then our body steps up and says, okay, you've ignored that. You've suppressed and avoided those feelings. Now my body is going to have to give me some signs that we're not um, digesting that. And so health to me is being aware that our body wisdom is highly intelligent and not to just see it as I've got a headache, it's not important. Um, mm. To take some respect for, for our body's recognition of that and again, in that stillness practice, you're a lot more aware what's going on as opposed to it'll be a fine, I'll be right. Um, 
I'll look at it again tomorrow. But tomorrow mm -hmm. it might be louder. And then if we continue on ignoring it, it could then become a cancer or something deeper than that. So is this, are we now talking about, I guess, Louise Hay? Are we Absolutely. in this yes. sort of space? Yeah. Yeah, my mum has been a huge follower of, of Louise, um, only in her adult life. And, of course, that meant that I sort of got on board the Louise Hay train um, in my teenage years. And I do truly believe it. I do truly believe that having, that reading your body um, can change the way or can help you change the way your body reacts to certain things. And certain body yeah. parts obviously relate relate to different emotions and different things. Yes, she's amazing. She's a pioneer in discovering that. And every time I've, you know, researched some physical ailment that I had in line with what emotionally it could mean, it's almost like 90% accurate to me. So it does pay to understand our bodies and understand what it's trying to teach us. And that when you go out against your authenticity and your natural state of being, that that's often when the body kind of stands up and says something and so notice what happens in our bodies when we're not doing something that's authentic or that we're going against our natural intuition and so you know there's a normal um there's intuition and then there's fear and i guess there's sort of those borderlines where you start to learn which is which um i'm not going to do it because my intuition says it's not right or it could just be that you're scared and you just need to push through it so our body gives us so many parts of our senses to listen to and understand and once you start going down that way you don't have to become um, overwhelmed by it you know every time you get a, a little feeling in your body that you've got to research it but I think it pays to take some time to listen to that wisdom and even do a little bit of reading about why this might be happening in my body. And doesn't this all come full circle back to that opportunity to sit quietly and and be with yourself for a period of yeah. time so that you can hear all of these things, whether it be when you're sitting quietly meditating and you do feel a niggle that's been there too long or the ache in your left knee that's been around too long or those questions come to you about um, behavioural patterns that have been in your family for too long or when you, you know, start questioning, oh, dear, I shouldn't have put these pants on today because they're not, you know, they make my bum look big. Like you, you yeah. only ever get the opportunity to ask yourself these questions when you do sit with yourself, don't you? And it comes yeah. back to that being present in the moment. It does. Our greatest gift that we can give each other is to know thyself, like to really just know who you are. And I don't think we do. And I certainly didn't. And I'm certainly not there yet, but to just give some space to that is, is a really beautiful um, gift that we're not only giving ourselves, but for the future as well and each other. Karen, I'm sure you can tell uh, just by speaking to me that I am fully on board with alternative and holistic practices and I truly believe in what you're doing and I'm sure we've opened the eyes um, of some of our listeners that perhaps a little bit more sceptical beforehand but it's certainly something that I think everyone needs to, to recognise and acknowledge and at least give it a go. It might really work for you. It might sit well with you and it, it might just um, 
you know, open you to a whole new world. If you would like to get in touch with Karen, um, she has written, as I said, two beautiful books, Courage and Moving Moments, about transforming your suffering into freedom. Um, alternative, holistic health service, a counsellor, energy healer, intuitive mentor, and just a wonderful, wonderful woman that um, I know we can all learn a lot from. So Karen, I really appreciate your time today and wish you all the best um, for a beautiful future. Thank you so much, Shelley, and it's an honour to speak with you today, especially about this subject I'm so passionate about. So thank you so much. No, thank you. Well, where do I begin? Firstly, I'd like to thank Karen Lang for so bravely sharing her story with us. Writing a book is one thing, but coming onto a podcast and talking all about it is another. And didn't she do an amazing job? Karen's book, Moving Moments, is a truly beautiful reminder about living a more conscious and authentic life. It's a book you keep coming back to. In our busy, do more, be more, have more lives, we rarely get reminded about what matters most. I'm sure, like me, you related to the topics of slowing down, being kinder on ourselves, and ancestral healing. Don't you think that is an incredibly cool concept, that each of our families have their own unique behavioural patterns? Some good, some not so good. It's empowering to think that we can make changes for future generations in our own family's lineage. I'm working on slowing down and being more present using meditation, but it is hard. It takes practice and discipline, but like any muscle, it gets stronger over time. Lots to process in today's episode. This is one that I know I will listen to again and again. If you enjoyed today's episode, please forward it on to a friend or share a review on iTunes. It helps more than you realise. Thanks for joining me on another episode of the Aging Project podcast. Until next time, I'm Shelley Craft, signing off as your host and co-pilot on this Aging Well journey. Speak to you soon. The Aging Project is brought to you by Poly Studio. They're our go-to team for all things podcasting.